Well, happy Easter. We're so glad that you're here today. You may have been greeted by somebody today that said something like this. They may have said, he is risen. And they were looking with expectation for you to respond in some way, and you may not know what to say. But for 2,000 years now, since Mary Magdalene first came and uh, said, he is risen indeed, that, uh, that is a phrase that Christians use and have used for years to describe uh, another believer responding to one believer. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I want to try that this morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, let's do it one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right. You know, it really has risen from the dead, and that's really what we're celebrating today in a huge way. And I want today for you to think about the day that changed everything. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you turn to Luke chapter 24 today, which is really the culmination of our study all the way through the book of Luke. Over the last year and a half, we've been in the Jesus series. We've looked at everything Luke says about Jesus, and now we're in the culmination of the life and ministry of Jesus and the resurrection story. So Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be. The title of the message today is A Day That Changed Everything. Now, as you're finding that text, let me ask you this question. What day changed everything for you? What day was it that happened that if you were asked the question, what day changed everything about your life and everything about the world as far as you're concerned, what day was that? If I were to poll people today and I would ask them that question uh, from all over the place, I would, I would get these kinds of answers. Sometimes people say when you ask them, what is the day that changed everything? They'll say, Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. A certain segment of people remember that as the most momentous day that they ever experienced, and everything was changed after that. The younger generation might be able to say 911. When 911 took place, where the terrorist attack on New York City took place, it changed the world for me. Some say the election of 2008 changed the world. Some say the election of 2016 changed the world. We have all kinds of world-changing events that take place. Some of you in this room might say this. If I ask you what day changed the world for you, you would say the birth of my first child. Because everybody knows when you have a child, all of a sudden, everything changes. Sleep patterns change. Everything changes. I actually read an article last week or a few weeks ago where a group traveling from California came through Texas, and one man said in his blog after the trip was over, I ate at Whataburger, and it changed my world. <laughs> Hard to believe that. But I think 2.4 billion Christians worshiping all over the world would have one common view of this world-changing day, and it would be Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's something inside of us that compels us to worship on that day. Something inside of us causes us to sit up and take note. Even people that really don't think about worshiping much, they don't think about church much, but on that day, it's an important day. It's an incredibly powerful day because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead and the day that we worship him and reflect on that, and that's what we want to do today. The day that changed everything. I want you to take your Bibles, and in Luke 24, we read the account of the resurrection of Christ, and we're going to look at all of chapter 24 in brief portions at a time, but first the first 12 verses. Here's what it says. For that group of people on that day that were in doubt, that were wondering what was happening around them, these who had followed Jesus, this is how it unfolded. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on that third day rise again? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, that would be the disciples, and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them to be an idle tale. Even the disciples at that moment thought that this was an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I think that's an interesting line. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. He needed to see for himself. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. There is no other way to construe this. This is the 24-hour period of confusion for people who were following Jesus in that day and in that time. Have you ever had a 24-hour period where you were absolutely confused and in doubt? A 24-hour period of time where you wondered how the outcome of whatever you were facing, whatever that would look like, how you would make it through the day, second-guessing everything you'd done during that 24-hour period because now you're in that moment of doubt. That's the 24 hours like Jesus and his disciples were facing. I read something not long ago about a little boy last year, last May, in Sam Houston State Park that wandered away from his parents. Three years old. His name was Ezra Parrish. His parents were camping at Sam Houston National Park, a national forest, and they looked away, and when they looked back, the little boy was gone. And for the next 24 hours, more than 200 rescuers looked for Ezra Parrish all night long, all into the next day. And by the end of that 24-hour period, most people feared that he was dead to the exposure or somehow taken by someone else. Nothing but tragic news. Nothing but doubts were in their mind. Nobody had hoped for a good outcome. And all of a sudden, some of the rescuers came upon brushes that were rustling, and they looked in a heavily wooded area, and here was little Ezra, three years old, scratched up, dehydrated, but smiling and happy to see somebody. He was rescued. His parents, all of a sudden, lost those moments of doubt and those moments of confusion and second-guessing, and all of a sudden, everything was right and well and good, along with those rescuers that were so happy with the outcome of that. But for those 24 hours, it was nothing but doubt. Sometimes we have 24-hour periods like that, and the disciples who had followed Jesus for three years were having those kinds of moments right there. Can you imagine for just a moment? Those 11 disciples that were still left, Judas had defied Jesus and denied him and had betrayed him. But the other 11 were there along with the women, along with many other followers of Jesus who had watched him over that three years, who had heard him talk about dying on the cross, being buried and rising again on the third day. And on that third day, they're wondering, is this going to happen? And for most of them, it was a 24-hour period of doubt. Now, we're down the road 2,000 years. We look back, and we know exactly what happened. That's why we're here today, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But, but just for a few moments, put yourself in their company. Think about what it must have been like to doubt, to be confused, to be disappointed, disappointed that things didn't turn out the way Jesus seemed to have been talking about. If you put yourself that day, you'll realize there that day, this thing was bigger than family. It was bigger than a job, bigger than career. It was bigger than the nation, the world. And that's the scenario they're looking at right there. Here's the one man that could change the world. The one man 
that said he represented God in every way. And now where is he? He's nowhere to be found. And this account of the resurrection details not just this group of people, but two individuals in particular who began to walk away from the area of that tomb and walk away from that city, Jerusalem, filled with doubt. And I want to take you on that journey with them this morning in Luke chapter 24. I want you to notice for these two people that we're going to introduce you to, it was a personal journey. Go back to your text, if you would, Luke 24 again. And in verse 13 and verse 14, we see this story. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. All the disappointment, all the fact that some had gone to the tomb and there was nobody there, but nobody else had seen Jesus. Only the angels said that he was risen from the dead. And then we have these two individuals who were moving from Jerusalem to Emmaus. The Bible describes it as a seven-mile journey. That's not a long trip. You, could, I, you and I can walk that trip in a matter of hours. But they were walking away from Jerusalem. Later on in the text, we're going to find that well, the name of one of them is Clopas. But the other one is left unnamed, and we don't know the gender. We don't know whether it's a man or a woman. And Luke uncharacteristically leaves that blank space there in this account. And today, for just a few moments, give me the opportunity to place you in that spot. You and a man named Clopas are walking away from that moment at that resurrection scene where they have yet to see Jesus. And notice that they're walking away from Jerusalem. They're moving away from where Jesus ultimately wants them to be. And I can tell you today, it was a, it was a journey of confusion and a journey of doubt. They're wondering the why questions. Why did they let this happen to Jesus? Why did we even follow him in the first place? Why are we left with nothing? We put everything into this. Some of them had left everything they knew about life. The fishermen had laid down their nets and left their fishing boat in the harbor, and they began to follow Jesus. So why would we stay in Jerusalem if he's not going to be there? Why do I feel so devastated? It had to be part of the conversation that they were having as they moved down the road to Emmaus. Some of us think that Emmaus must have been a super spiritual place, but it wasn't. It was just a place away from Jerusalem and away from the tomb and away from where Jesus ultimately wanted them to be. These guys' world was messed up. You ever have a moment, you ever have that moment where you look around you and you say, my world is messed up. I had a moment like that this last week. I'm a very optimistic person. If someone were to describe me as pessimistic, they just don't know who I am. I'm glass half full. I believe something's always going to happen good, that God's always going to come through. But I had a moment last week where I was looking around the world that I live in, the world that you live in, and I, I just concluded this place is broken. This place is broken. We are broken. Our world is broken. Everything around us is messed up. And we could go into all kinds of description about how everything is messed up, but you and I know it is messed up, just like their world was drastically messed up. It takes a journey of life intersecting with a journey of faith to figure out the answers at times like that, just like these two individuals right here. They were on a journey of life. They were disappointed and all of us are on a journey of life. But you know, the, God, the desire that God has for all of us is for the journey of life and the journey of faith to intersect. At some point, for us to have an encounter, 
At some point for us to be able to know the God of the universe and to know that he has a plan in spite of what it looks like around us. And we need that kind of interaction. These men needed to know that Jesus was rising from the dead, that he was going to change everything. They needed that moment just like we need that moment. And so as they journey, they have what I could only call a surprising encounter. Surprising because they didn't expect the men they were talking about to meet them on that road to Emmaus. If you go back to chapter 24 and verse 15, you'll see a couple of verses that describe what's happening. It's really amazing if you watch it unfold. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I love that line, Jesus himself. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I want to pause here for just a moment in the story because you and I need to get what's going on here pretty clearly. Disciples walking away, those who had been following Jesus, having all kinds of doubts and concerns, turmoil in their lives. And they're moving away from where they need to be. And all of a sudden, as they're walking and as they're talking together about the events of the previous day, someone joins them. Now, we know, because the Scripture tells us, this is Jesus himself, but they don't know it. Jesus himself, consider that for just a moment. Jesus himself. Think about the fact that Jesus did not send a messenger, did not send an angel, didn't give them some sign in the skies or some indicator by some other way. But Jesus himself meets these two men on their journey of doubt and helps them work through all that they're having to work through. Jesus himself. Last week, we talked an awful lot about the cross, about the fact that Jesus died on the cross, the fact that he gave his life for the sins of mankind, the fact that he was scourged, nailed to the cross with the spikes that Roman soldiers would use, impaling him, so to speak, on the cross, and how during those agonizing hours, the life ebbed out of him because he was giving his life to pay for the sins of mankind. And we ask the question, can you imagine greater love than this? I can't imagine greater love than the love that would allow a man to lay down his life on the cross for me. In fact, the Bible says that. Jesus himself says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. If you doubt the love of Jesus and what he did on the cross, well, try this one on for size. While these two individuals are walking away from Jerusalem, Jesus himself comes and meets them in their doubt right where they are. I'm impressed by the love and the personal nature of God by exactly what's happening here. And it leaves an incredible teaching moment for us. First of all, let me note that they were kept from recognizing him. The Bible says that God did not allow them to see who Jesus was. Kind of answers the questions for us, doesn't it? That, that Mary later on in the garden saw Jesus but thought he was the gardener. She didn't really fully recognize him until he let her. So somehow God allowed these men to see a body and to see a man talking to them, but he disallowed them from recognizing that this was Jesus Christ himself. The resurrected, glorified Jesus was somehow, in a way, presented to them that they did not understand that. It's what we call in the Greek language a divine passive. God acts on us so that we cannot see something. God prevented them from visual recognition to make this a teachable moment. And I want to drive this point down right now. This teachable moment is important. This is often the way it is with Jesus. We don't always recognize him when we encounter him. We don't always know he's there. 
There are times we think he's not there, but he is there. We miss him, but he's there. There are times we think we walk through something alone, but he is there. He was there for these two as they walked to Emmaus, and he's there for you as well. I want you to notice, secondly, we know it's Jesus because we're reading the story from Luke's perspective, but it helps us see the, the concern and the care and the love that he has for us in tough times. I know this. All of us have been through real difficult times in our lives. All of us have been through disappointing times, times when we were disillusioned, and many of us have been at the brink of just wanting to give up everything. And I want you to know that you may not have seen Jesus. You may not have heard his words. You may not have recognized his presence, but he was there with you. He would not let you walk that alone. That's how the story unfolds for us. It says that he listened to their pain. Go back to verse 17 as we follow the, the events of his story. He said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. The wording of that helps us know they're deeply sad and they're grieved. And then one of them, one named Clopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? That's how we know that Clopas doesn't recognize Jesus at all. Are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on here? And so he responds to Jesus like that, but notice he listened to their pain. He listened to them talk, and still he just listened. Even though gloom and defeat were all over their faces, he didn't rescue them from that at the moment. He just listened. In fact, not only did he listen, he asked more. Notice he heard their hopes. In verse 21, he says, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So here is Clopas saying to Jesus, whom he does not recognize, we had hoped that he, that is Jesus, would be the one who redeemed Israel. He heard their hopes. It's not hard to see that their hopes and expectations were not exactly like what Jesus promised. It's not hard to see that their hopes and, and dreams were crushed as well. It may be that these men really wanted something more political and more physical than Jesus has promised, but when Jesus comes and when he reveals himself, what he gives is greater than political and greater than physical when he reveals himself. And they'll recognize that when it happens. So he hears their hope, but he also saw their doubts. He saw their doubts. In verse 22 through verse 24, Look at exactly at what they say here. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. So he hears all this. He saw their doubts. Notice the line, him that we did not see. We didn't see Jesus, but we heard about an empty tomb, and we heard what the angels had said to the women, but him we did not see. Again, I need to pause. These are real people who have real doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, and they were closest to him. They had walked with him for some period of time. They had been in the inner circle of knowing what he taught, what he had promised. And they're doing their best to believe in a God of miracles and the one who keeps their promises, his promises. But still they do not believe. And notice this, they do not believe yet and he does not reject them. That's an important moment for us today. These two doubted. 
Jesus did not reject them. These two had questions that were yet to be answered, and Jesus did not cast them out. That's a pretty big deal. He saw their doubts. I like these two because these two say, even though somebody else saw that the tomb was empty, even though the angels say he rose from the dead, we haven't seen that yet. We need to see him personally. May I just say this today? Your faith, if it's real faith, can't be the faith of somebody else in Jesus. You can't have real faith that really just belongs to your mom or your dad. You can't have real faith if it only belongs to your spouse or your children. Real faith has to be your faith. You have to have your questions answered. You have to have your doubts taken care of. And Jesus can do that, but he wants to do that for you. And these two were waiting for somehow proof to be given. And Jesus comes through really well. He shows them everything they need to see so that they can have a real and a personal faith. Now, I know here today there are people who have personal pain. And I know here today there are people who have unfulfilled hopes. And it may be today that you're one that has strong doubts. You may be asking questions like, does God exist? Or does God know what I'm going through? All the travail, all the problems I have, does he know that? Or you may be asking the question, does God even care? And if you're one of those individuals that's doubting, just like these were doubting, let me just say to you that there's an encounter that can take place with Jesus just like these had. And that brings us to what I call a very powerful moment in the story, super powerful moment. That's the moment they see him for who he really is. Go back to Luke 24, this time verse 25. And he said to them in this conversation, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then look down in verse 31 and 2. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight at that moment. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, you see, what happens to them is that Jesus gives them a way to see who he really is. And the same unusual wording that we read a moment ago, where God did not let them see it was Jesus, happens this time in reverse when they get to the place where they're going. And there they are allowed to see who Jesus is. There their eyes are open, and all of a sudden God moves in their life, and at that moment they see exactly who Jesus is. And the conversation moves in that moment from doubt and darkness to conviction and certainty, the moment he chooses to show himself. It's a big deal. It's a powerful moment because Jesus says, I am right here. Let me just say to you today, this is what he does. This is how he works. You say, what do you mean? Well, God waits, waits for the right time and the right place. He waits for the right level of desperation, the right level of desire. He waits for the moment where you need him the most, the moment where you're most willing to stop trusting yourself and everything else you try and put your complete faith and trust in him at that moment. I want you to be impressed today by the love of Christ, by how personal, by how intimate, by how trustworthy Jesus is to come alongside us in a powerful moment of our life 
just when we're most open to seeing him. That's what he did for these two. That's what he does for people all the time. He answers doubts. In verses 38 through verse 40, he says, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side. And they're afraid that they've seen a spirit, not a resurrected body, a resurrected man. So he says, do you have any broiled fish? Give me the fish. And so they give him fish and he eats it. The spirit doesn't eat. He says, look at me. I, I'm the one that rose from the dead. I'm giving you evidence to take your doubts and shatter them completely today. And he does that. He answers their doubts about his existence. He opens their mind about his purpose. He begins to speak to them about why he died, helping them understand that he died to pay for sin so that every person could have their sins forgiven and they could be given the gift of eternal life. And then he fulfills hopes. He helps them know there's life on the other side of this tomb. There's victory over death and victory over self. So what he does is he reveals himself to them in a real, personal, spiritual purposeful way and he really in this in this story addresses every kind of hope you have and the answers for why that you have I know it's easy for us to say yeah but these guys were part of the resurrection story of course of course he appeared to them of course he revealed himself to them but I want you to know that he still does that today if you think that Jesus Christ doesn't reveal himself today the way he did to people in that day and time, you are just wrong. He does reveal himself to us today. I see story after story. I've had experience after experience of Jesus making himself very real to me and to others. One of the greatest stories that I've read in recent years is the story of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a Chicago Tribune investigative reporter and during the period of time in the late 70s and early 80s when he was employed by that company, his wife came to faith in Jesus. She began going to church, heard about the good news of Jesus. She gave her life to Jesus and came home and told Lee Strobel that she had come to Christ and it angered him and infuriated him for a number of reasons. For one, she was talking about Jesus as though she would talk about another man, about how much she loved him, about how she wanted to follow him, about how real it was. And it wasn't real for Lee at that moment, so he was very angry. And he began to investigate the claims of the resurrection of Jesus, intending to disprove them all. And so as he began that investigation, he, he dug, dug very deeply into all the facts that he could, talking to historians and theologians and uh, archaeologists and others. Eventually, Lee Strobel came to the point where he could not deny the resurrection of Christ anymore. He wrote a phenomenal book called The Case for Christ, which is a, a, a fantastic book about how a person in doubt comes to faith in Jesus. And then he allowed a movie to be created about the story of his faith. It's called The Case for Christ, set in about 1981, recently released this past year. And in that story, there's a scene where he tells his wife the conclusion of his study. It's very rare for me to include a movie in my message, but we're going to the movies for just a moment to watch that scene where Lee Strobel tells his wife, I believe. Now, why would I conclude a message with that, that scene from that movie? I would do that because I know so many are in doubt, so many don't know what next step to take, and I do that because it's a pretty accurate depiction of 
where someone comes from a place of doubt to a place of belief and the simplicity of just taking that step and believing. It's a pretty biblical description of that moment of inviting Christ into your life. And I want to give you that moment this morning. I think it's one of the most important things we can do on, on this Sunday because there are so many that may have said, I doubt, I don't know, I'm not sure. What you've, read, what you've read with me, what you've heard me talk about for the last few minutes is two individuals that were as filled with doubt as anybody. And Jesus personally revealed himself to them. And I want you to know he can reveal himself to you as well. There's a line in Luke 24 where they said to each other after they realized it was Jesus walking with them, they said, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked? We knew something was happening. We just didn't fully realize who he was. And I'm wondering today if, if there's that moment happening with you, if your heart is burning and you know that he's making himself known to you right now, his reality, the fact that he's alive, the fact that he wants you to follow him, the fact that he wants to forgive you of sin and give you the gift of eternal life. And if your heart is burning within you, I want to lead you in a prayer similar to what you saw a moment ago. This is not a come forward invitation, an invitation where I'll ask you to walk forward or ask you to stand up or anything like that. But this is a decision where you need to have a personal, private moment with the Lord and allow Him to be the one you put your faith and trust in. And if you want to do that today, I want to lead you in that. It's a prayer that says something like this. It says, Lord, I know that you sent Jesus down on the cross, and I know I need to have my sins forgiven. And I choose to turn away from my sin and everything else I've trusted in, put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. I believe you've shown me that you're real. I ask you to be my Lord. I ask you to be my Savior. Help me to live for you. And I want to lead you in that kind of a prayer right now. I want you to bow your head wherever you are across the room. Now, this will be the kind of prayer that I lead you in a phrase at a time. And you can say this prayer to him even if it's not verbal, even if it's not out loud. The Bible says the first thing we do is we believe in our heart and then we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. This is the time and the moment where you can believe in your heart. And I'll share with you how you can confess with your mouth in just a moment. But here's the prayer. And as I walk through this prayer, praise and time, there'll be plenty of pauses for you to just speak to the Lord. Listen, the Lord that knows the number of hair on your head knows your thoughts. Even if you don't speak out loud, He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows where you are. So trust Him with this. Here's the prayer. If you want to pray, pray it now. Dear Heavenly Father, today I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross. I believe that. And today, I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead and is alive. Today, I believe you're making yourself very real to me. So today, I believe. I choose to set aside my doubts and concerns because I believe. And I know that you'll answer every future question at some point. Today, I turn away from my sin and I turn away from everything else I've trusted in. And I put all my confidence in Jesus alone. Forgive me of my sin.
Give me the gift of eternal life. I pray you'll be my Savior today. And I ask you to be my Lord today. Today I choose to begin walking with you. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for letting my heart burn within. Thank you for letting me recognize you're real. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I, I know that in our earlier services we've had people that pray this prayer. I know some people pray to invite Christ in their life today. Would you affirm them, just not even knowing who they are, just affirm them right now. You know what that means. It means we're excited about the fact that people put their faith and trust in Christ. It's always such an important decision. And that's how all believers will respond to whatever decision you make today. Here's how I would like for you to let us know about that. You'll see a card that's at the bottom of your guest card. And uh, it says this. It has a place for your name and email. And it says, I'm a guest. That's one box you can check. And then another one is, I made a decision. Today, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, today, if you pray that prayer with me, I want you to say in this box, by checking it, I made a decision with your name and your email. And when you take this out on your way out at the end of the service in just a moment, there'll be three stations outside, one outside of each of these three doors that are closest to the center. If you go out the center door, just cross the hallway to our guest reception area, and you'll see the sign and the tables, and it says decision station. There'll be people stationed there. Here's what they want to do. They want to take your card from you, and as you give your card to them, they're going to give you a Bible like this one I preached out of this morning. They're going to give you some follow-up material that I have written that describes what your next steps are as a new believer in Jesus Christ and just another piece of information to help you know what's next for you as a new believer. We rejoice in that. We want to rejoice with you. We want to be there for you. Throughout the conclusion of the prayer, if you just go to one of those tables, there'll be somebody there. Take your card, answer any questions that you may have. They're ready to talk to you, and they're ready to give you the gifts we talked about. So I rejoice today if you put your faith and trust in Christ. I rejoice that we were able to say together, Jesus Christ is risen again. He's risen indeed. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, in Jesus' name today, I thank you so much for the privilege we have of knowing, Lord, that you rose from the dead, that you have secured everything that we need secured for us. And you offer us this amazing gift of eternal life today. For all those that made that decision, Lord, I pray that they'll be bold enough to take it to the next step, to talk to someone at one of our tables. Lord, use that conversation in a big way. And Lord, today as we go out of this room, help us to keep the message on our lips. Jesus Christ is alive. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.